0: Welcome to episode 14 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Carl Goodwin, a PhD candidate here at the University of Kent and one of our graduate teaching assistants. Carl's PhD is looking at the politics behind recreations of Roman cultural identity in museums and heritage displays. So naturally this week we're talking a lot about museums, such as who decides what goes into exhibitions, how they're presented, how museums interact with social media, and the importance of engaging with theoretical approaches in archeology span and heritage. Carl also talks about his favourite museum and exhibition and how he loves it when a museum or an exhibition takes modern issues and brings them together with Roman heritage. We also discuss how his life could have taken a different trajectory given his interest in maths at a young age and how there is an alternate reality Carl that works as a banker in Canary Wharf. Now I will say that this episode was third time lucky. We had to re-record after, well initially we did a recording where Carl was my guinea pig for the podcast before I started up properly which I'm very grateful for and so he returned last week to record a proper episode unfortunately didn't press record so he had to then come back the following day again and unfortunately you guys will miss out on the great conversation that we had in that original recording or I said non recording where we talked about The Rock and Carl's amazing shirt and how he thinks ironing is a social construct that we shouldn't adhere to. Also, one other thing I should probably mention is that when Carl was a young, wide-eyed first year in his very first term, he was taught by a rather inept PhD student whose voice you're currently listening to right now. And somehow, some way, he was able to overcome that and do quite well for himself, as we discussed on today's podcast Also, finally, as well, uh, at the very end of the episode, I talk about how I prefer Taylor Swift to Ed Sheeran. That is not me being ironic. I generally think that 1989 is an absolute banger of an album. So thanks for joining me and on to the show. Even get my head to get remember, give me a moment, Jesus. I can't even remember. I can't, how did I start yesterday? I can't even remember. Uh, I was talking about The Rock. Oh, that was it, yeah. We were talking about The Rock. We talk about, He's
1: looking forward to Steve tonight?
0: Oh, yeah, Steve Willis. Steve Willis is doing his talk over at uh, Canterbury Crosschurch. Indeed. Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to that on the uh, Saxon Shaw Hall Lim. I When I was an undergrad, I
1: got asked to stay behind from a seminar once, and I walked into the room, and it was the late antique... Um, like society's research group. Oh yeah, yeah, which you would have been a part of when he was a PhD. Maybe was you? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. here. And um, yeah, I sat in one of them, and the presentation Steve was giving was about Port Lim.
0: I was there for that. I, yeah. yeah, I asked a question as well. I think was it in like Rutherford or yeah, something like that? Yeah, cloister yeah, rooms. yeah. I was yeah. there. I asked yeah. asked a couple of questions because I asked him about why there weren't any religious buildings there. And he was like, that's an interesting question. And it's one that I've toyed with ever since in my head. Maybe.
1: Ask him again tonight. I might well do,
0: actually, because there are no religious structures associated with Saxon shore forts that have been found. There's the two temples of Richborough, but they are misdated. They are actually earlier in date. It's been established now, yeah. although that's unpublished. Although you know, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say where I got that nugget from, nugget of info from. But I can <laughs> tell you that they are, they have been misdated previously. That they, they are, they are from the late first, early second century. Which means that you'll be hard pressed to find a temple at a military site in Britain, or actually in a lot of places, but particularly in Britain, that's later in the third century, unless. It's to Mithras or Jupiter Dolycanus. There you go. I wrote I wrote an article on it, but I still haven't uh, sent it off yet. I need to get that done. <laughs> don't um, steal it. Yeah, don't steal that. Don't, I mean, put, I, don't, don't put this out until you've sent it well, off to the Well, I'm going to send it this weekend, I think, because it's been literally on my desktop for months and months. I started doing a uh, article early last year all about temple construction repair in Britain, and then I finally got around to reading Alexander Smith's BAR volume, on temples from the Iron Age to Rome Britain and realised that he had graphs in there that covered that stuff. So I was like, oh, none of what I'm saying is original. It was only because I realised that there was a bit... He doesn't talk about military temples. And in fact, nobody ever does talk about particularly temples at military sites and how uh, approaches to those develop over time. So that, that's what it's all about. So Easy fix. Just put
1: the word military in front of every single time you say temple.
0: <laughs> well, I mean... But they're on military sites, so they are. They are military. I'm not. I'm not just spinning it. <laughs> it will work if it works. It works. Yeah, but we're here to discuss your PhD. To discuss your work. Aye. Again. <laughs> <laughs> so, how's it going? How's it going? First of all, what's the PhD on? Um, Last time we recorded this, a uh, 24 hours ago, and didn't record. Uh, you had to read it out. I had it in my notes. Do you remember what it is? Can you remember? Um, can you remember the title of your PhD
1: without actually looking? The first bit is ancient culture and modern ethnicity. Yes, it
0: is. Yes, and then the bit after that is uh, no idea. Exploring the politics behind recreations of Roman cultural identity in museums and heritage displays. See, I'm really going to. Re- I'm going to rework that. Yeah, because that's. Uh, too long. Well, PhD title sort of is work in progress, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's not none too snappy. But, uh, uh, <laughs> it's definitely not snappy. What's the uh, what's the score with that? What
1: what are you trying to do there? So I'm looking at um, the narratives within a museum uh, and heritage sites. Uh, I'm choosing Roman displays because obviously doing classics and archaeology and philosophy at Kent and archaeology at Kent for undergraduate masters. Um, I focused on the Roman, well, Iron Age period, and got shunted into the Roman. Not to say I didn't like it. Roman period's all right. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we yeah. welcomed you with open arms. <laughs> well, you did. <laughs> and then, um, so yeah, uh, I'm using the Roman periods um, to look at who's influencing the displays. Um, so. We've um, got opposite like government, can they influence it? Can the creators influence it? Can archaeologists um, influence such displays? And where ethnicity comes into it, because that seems a bit of a curveball in the title. Um, essentially, I'm using ethnicity as a way to see how a, a modern term or concept can be worked into a display and how they how are they using it. So there's been works on ethnicity by Jones and other people um in the past 30 years um so it's quite modern in archaeology as a sense as a phrase as a phrase of the term and um we define it in a way which looks at culture religion language um ethnicity race can be thrown in there as well job age anything whatever you associate yourself with with different groups of, of um, humans and uh, the government if you fill in a form um it will say give you options, won't it? And the options are always a combination of um, your nationality and your skin colour. So it's um, white, European, white, British, black, African, stuff like that. And um, that's quite geographically determined, which is quite... Uh, it's got connotations, I think, with uh, with race, which is the one thing that ethnicity seems to try to turn away from. Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting to go through, uh, look at museums and heritage displays Uh, And actually think when they're talking about ethnicity or ethnic diversity or identity and so forth, uh, what definitions are they using? Are they using a definition which is closer to the archaeologists, the ones that they're supposed to be representing? Or is it close to the governmental definition? And depending on which one, more interesting for me if it's the governmental one, because then you can work in like Foucault and people like that and looking at power and knowledge and the relations there
0: that philosophy still coming in handy then from undergraduate I try
1: I really try to keep with it <laughs> <laughs> um, yes but that's that's where it gets kind of all social issues and, and politics I just find I find it very relevant for archaeology so it's quite nice for me to go from archaeology to the masters where I literally was straight on archaeology looking at the Iron Age transition from there to Roman, was what I was interested in and uh, I think um, I like the real, the kind of the modernness of what I'm doing, and it seems to be everywhere as well. These the the, the stories you get from like Mary with the BBC documentary, the the small cartoon with a black soldier, and um, people don't like it. Uh, and why don't they? With well, identity issues and identity politics and stuff. And I think looking at museums is a way that we can explore that further and explore archaeology. How responsible are we for maybe going to museums and say, hey, can you do that in a different way? or how they translate the information to, to the public and so forth. Mm. That's essentially what I'm trying to do in a, a really wordy nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's
0: looking at like uh, power um how things affect narratives and so forth. Yeah. So far, how have you found in terms of, or what have you found in terms of who does influence these displays? I mean, you talked about archaeologists, creators, the government, who, who does tend to quite often have the, the say in how these things are produced I think it goes without saying, obviously,
1: that the creators and the curatorial teams have the biggest say. So they have their own ideas, obviously,
0: and that gets mm. worked in. Um, I guess maybe say is the best way of putting it, but influence. Like, who, yeah. really, who has the strongest kind of influence? Because obviously you say, like, curators are the ones doing it, but to what extent are they beholden to what other people are telling them they have to, you know, crush yeah. or they have to fulfil? <clears throat> well, the information that they've got is obviously from archaeologists, and to many extent they
1: can't divulge more than what's been studied. Uh, if they do, then they've they kind of got that threat looming over their head that someone might go, "Oh, is that where? Do you, where? Why do you know this?" But they've got to make it relatable to the public, and the public know governmental definitions more, especially with like ethnicity and identity, because that's what they're used to. So many through like interviews with creators and people on curatorial teams, and talk about I bring up the national curriculum. Because I think, as a public, we don't necessarily relate what we teach people through school with the government. I think we we don't really see them as links, unless we think about it. And if a display is related to the national curriculum, or using that to actually relate to um, school groups, then it inevitably can be um, influenced by the government in a roundabout way. So... I'd say, in some respects, the government probably has a bit more of a hand than we might like to mm-hmm. think they do. And obviously, like social issues will influence the way we think anyway, so, you know, identity, gender, um, that sort of stuff is now spoken about more. Uh, mental health, so you've got a big push with mental health and well-being with museums now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that stuff's going to come into the creator's mind, isn't it, when they think of what's, what's relevant for the public, because a museum display is only going to be... Important or in existence if it's relevant for someone or some group enough to keep it open, anyway. There's
0: nothing worse than going to a museum that you can see is falling on hard times. Or doesn't get many people through the door anymore, where the displays you can clearly see were made in the 1970s and have never moved on. It's like really bad dummies and just yeah, you can really like beige kind of colouring and just like oh, you I, can really I've got a couple tell. of museums in mind when I think of that as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate because you like you walk in, it's like you got so much good stuff. Like, they have all the same articles, articles, but they are artifacts from other museums. But um, yeah, you can you can kind of tell, and you can also tell in the language. So, a few museums will will try to be theoretical, perhaps, but they did it 15 years ago or 10 years ago. So Romanization is plastered on the wall somewhere, and walking around knowing that terms may be a bit risky, mm. it's a bit like oh, maybe that needs updating. Just uh, a slight word change, for for example. Yeah. But um. But then again, that's the, if, difficult if um, creating displays for museums, the public now know what romanization generally
0: means. Yeah. Well, it's that kind of cyclical process, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, I bang on relentlessly in um, lectures and seminars, so Romanisation isn't its just not a thing. But it's then hard to keep saying that to students who then go to a museum where they see Romanisation. So they see it being used. And then, as such, I mean, when somebody writes an essay for me, if they use the word Romanisation, I'll probably circle it and say, Ugh really. But I don't really feel like I could ever, you know, mark them down for using romanization because it's such a common term and it's so widely applied and it's so regularly applied that that if they do use it, you can't really say no. But then you're kind of stuck in that position. Because you're widely because it's so widely used, you have to kind of acquiesce to them using it in some regards. But if you acquiesce to people using it, then it keeps getting used and you just keep going round and round and round in the circle.
1: Yeah, if you can't um <clears throat>
0: you can't stop them using romanization
1: in the sense that that's the word they know and yeah it's ambiguous when they use it but i'd rather them use romanization and talk about the mixing of cultures or culturation or
0: so whatever it's R- romanization is a step up from saying civilization that's that's yeah. the worst one that's, that's like when someone says the romans are a civilizing effect that's yeah. genuinely cringy. so it's it, it's i think it's a step in the right direction and
1: uh, it's almost a step into theory as well, which is quite nice
0: to see with students. Yeah. I was talking about this with Andy Gardner, though, before about theory and how... It, it always seems to be that most people come into archaeology or those that come into archaeology or study the ancient world, when they are presented with theory, or just the word theory, the first thing they do is generally turn around and walk the other way. A people and hide. A lot of people don't like the idea of theory. They don't like the idea of it. But once they actually start engaging with what it is... You have this light bulb moment where suddenly you realise, oh, now I get why this is important. I understand why this is interesting, and I understand how this, in some respects, a lot of what you know the artefacts that we're getting out of the ground and you know the historical narratives, these sort of things. But this is how it kind of ties a lot of this together, and how you make sense out of it. And obviously, as well, when you talk about theory, that tends to apply across history as well. So you know, you can talk about theoretical approaches to the Roman world that will have some sort of echo in how we uh, approach are uh, modern societies as well. Yeah. Which kind of very much relates to what you're doing, I guess. In
1: Yeah, well, yeah, my work's very, like, theory-laden. So I see seminars as well, and, well, lead seminars. And I mention, I mention theory in my seminars, but I don't explicitly say this is theory as such. I sometimes do, but that's generally after they've been talking about it for a while, and it's kind of normal what they're talking about. It's not some big, strange idea. Um, and I think... Yeah, I think if you mention theory, it's a scary word. I think it's really scary for students to hear the word theory, especially in first year, because um, they're thinking, Christ, is this, well, yeah. this going to be really difficult, isn't it? And I think
0: a lot of people jump into archaeology sometimes with an idea that it's quite simplistic in terms of it's digging stuff out of the ground, and it's also about just history, basically. It's just yeah. a story that follows through, which in some respects, you know, those are part of it, but... I think it's that suggestion that suddenly this is a lot more complicated than what you thought it was that scares people off. Now, that obviously is one of those things that that's to be expected when you go to university and do a subject that actually is a lot more complicated than you thought. And actually, that's one of the benefits of it as well, that once you start to engage with theoretical approaches, suddenly it can really affect your mindset about, as I say, how everything fits together, how we approach things. You start to become much more aware of the, the wider picture. Like, you know, obviously when we talk about romanization that... You know, most people don't realise that those that word was invented in a period when the British Empire was at its height. Britain had its own empire. It was also when archaeology as a subject was starting to take off. And all this stuff is interrelated to so our approaches to the Roman Empire are very much related to how Britain saw its own imperial role and subsequently approaches to the Roman Empire have changed and Roman culture have changed as Britain's relationship with the idea of empire has also changed. But a lot of people just don't have any kind of concept of that, really. Well, it's, um, it's part of my... Every uh, research so I do questionnaires uh, with the public
1: and um it's uh, it's interesting because a group of the questions that well, you you fill it in um a group of questions it kind of looks at what you think a museum should be is it a social role or does it just keep history and one of the questions is should the Roman period be um depicted in ways that relate to the modern society and um for me that's a kind of no brainer uh, yes um if you can do it why would you not and then it's uh but a lot of individuals in the public get confused they think history should just be history it should just be people digging stuff out of the ground or research and just recording events of what happens hmm. i don't think you put the same amount of analysis or they don't put as much emphasis on um archaeologists actually using theories and modern theories to to look at the past i think it's uh they see it as a very separate thing.
0: Do you think that's partly to do with an idea of escapism? The archaeology does tend to, for a lot of people, be a pastime. History, an interest in history is a pastime. We're talking before about time team, which to be on a Sunday evening, a weekend show. That there's that relationship people have with, with history and archaeology that they they basically they want it to stay uncomplicated because it's related to being, you know, something they do in their spare time. And you know, I was talking the other week with Patty about how I like reading about the Tudors, but I don't have to critic, apply any critical thought to it. I can just read something. And I mean, I've got, I'd say, a fairly decent knowledge of, of the Tudors and, and Tudor life, but even still, like, I don't read, like, the latest journal articles on it or the latest actual academic books on it. You know, so there's stuff where I read things and I'm not going to be particularly critical of it. And it's nice because it's a break from where I have to every time I read anything to do with Roman archaeology, mm. I'm always like, but have you thought about this? What about, you know, I can't, you can't really switch off when you look at stuff and analyze it. Yeah. I mean, you have me anything on Mithras and I'll just be like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I'm just like, I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, do you think there's, that's part of it that people almost, there's resistance to that. I mean, maybe even a subconscious resistance to that because people don't want something they enjoy doing to start becoming too complicated, basically. And as I say, that in itself is not going to be necessarily a bad thing about complicating it. I mean, that's kind of what we want to do. Yeah. But do you think that people... that That's just a difficult bridge for people to cross when they think of it as being something they just want to just mainly enjoy? I think it's the difference between
1: history for the public and history for archaeology, maybe, for academia. It is a pastime. It is seen as an enjoyable thing, isn't it? Because it is fun, actually, learning about the past, because we all have that connection to it. And... Yeah, I suppose if you complicate things too much, i.e. ask too many questions, the whole fun of doing it for a lot of people maybe is is lost because if it's for a hobby, you don't really want to think about it too much. Mm. You don't want to be watching a film like um, 300 and every two minutes going, should that really be like that? Is this what would really happen? Would mm, yeah. Would people dress like that and stuff like this? And I think... Yeah, it probably has to do with escapism, isn't it, and past time and like time team making it really fun and everything. Uh, obviously, with time team, there was a lot of scholarship behind it, mm. with the ideas. But as a public, you don't actually see that that much yeah, yeah. when you view it. So it goes from digging up stuff to ah, this you got a wall. Ah, this was a barn. Yeah, yeah. And you're just as a, maybe as someone who's not an archaeologist who's done it before, you, you you kind of you don't question that because you're like, well, they're the experts. Um, But when you, I guess, when you become close to being um, knowledgeable or knowledgeable, then you start questioning everything. And it's, yeah, maybe, yeah, it probably does take it away uh, quite a bit, doesn't it? Same thing with what I said about the museums. If um, they want to keep us history rather than uh, some sort of analogy of modern day life and what we're doing right and wrong and stuff like that and talking about politics through history some people might to see it as a pointless exercise because it's
0: not interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a shame.
0: Yeah. No. Well, I think that's the, that, for me, that's the interesting part of it now, complicating it. Yeah. And, yeah. and being like, it isn't what you thought it was. Well, I studied it for so many years if you look at the complicated bits. Yeah, that's the thing. You want to, you want the cogs in your head to keep turning and having those moments where you're like, oh, oh, okay. You know, mm-hmm. when you start joining the dots because there's a, there's a, great deal of satisfactions we had how joining the dots as well oh yeah and particularly well, when you can develop a theoretical perspective or just a perspective in general that somebody hasn't had before
1: yeah i think when because <clears throat> i explained theory to students like it's not the methodology it's it's kind of the tool we use it's the uh, it's the way you look at something it's the colored lenses that you have mm. and i think once you find a theory which suits you and your interests it's just fascinating to look at any sort of anything through that. So, with me looking at through narratology, I find it fascinating to think, I wonder who said that. I wonder who, um, pushed that idea. I wonder if that is a, as an effect of, say, society, or if it's, um, a dominating view from one demographic to the other. Stuff What's, like uh, narratology again? So, narratology. <laughs> Well, interesting enough, I didn't get it from archaeology or museology. I used to, and I still do to a certain extent, proofread my sister's essays for uh, media studies. And narratology, as you can probably guess, gets used in documentaries. And she talks about the the narrative and the narrator and their connection of what they want to tell you, how do they tell you, what do they show on screen. So it's kind of the person telling the message the way they do that and who the message is for and i just find it really interesting and it's interesting
0: I, was, I don't i was just giving i literally came from doing a seminar on trajan's column and what is trying to be transmitted through the way trajan's columns arranged yeah. and the idea that it's not actually you don't read it as a straightforward story that it's more complicated than that but there's like a certain way the design is configured that is trying to to transmit certain things, which is interesting because that obviously what you're saying, like as a theoretical model, yeah. using it as a tool, you're talking about how you're exploring museums, but more generally, I mean, I suppose in some respects, you know, you would apply that to look at say something like Trajan's Column It's and, just a message. You can yeah. do it to
1: any message and pretty much everything's message, isn't it? And yeah, so I I used that looking at museums. And it's been used by it's been used by people before, like Hooper Greenhill, um who's looked at narratology within museums. Because there was quite clearly a narrative that goes through a display and there are people behind it who put it together. So why have they chosen a certain narrative? Mm. Why have they chosen this and that? Why have they described something as as this? Why have they, for example, go around an old museum, they've got mannequins. Why have they chosen only white mannequins? Mm. Is that because it was on purpose? Was it not on purpose? Did you not think about it? Was it political? Was it a social thing?
0: You see that exhibition that's coming out in Brighton about Brighton's earliest residence? Yeah, it's,
1: it's like meet the ancestors, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: priceless um, style. Yeah, look very
1: interesting. Yeah, I, I actually retweeted. Oh, really? I, that's probably where I saw it then. <laughs> I was looking forward to it that much. I retweeted. Okay. But um, yeah, no, because they it's it's similar to small cases in different museums. So it's like the the uh, Egyptian female in Maidstone Museum. Um, so it's a really nice uh, display, but she's got heritage and from DNA maybe not hair DNA from a different part of the world and um it's kinda of what they've done, isn't it? With reconstruction, it's difficult to figure out how they looked mm. in different way in like like how well for example I was talking to one individual who was part of the process of creating a, a reconstructed uh, a facial reconstruction and he was white and he basically said it was difficult for me to try and talk about how dark the skin tone should be it's a, a, and it is probably a tricky thing because that's going to go on display, people ask questions anyway but even even then you're basically deciding how someone looked uh, and it's quite a divisive um, issue, or well, it can be and it's been decided by white people so it would be interesting to see what Brighton do, mm. like, do will they go well, I'm going to presume there's a range because I've seen a few of the faces anyway and um, it looks to be a range of identities. So, yeah, it would be interesting. I'm looking forward to see how it represents the diversity of Brighton itself. If there's a reflection, if there's a connection.
0: Yeah, because Brighton as a place is... is it's It prides itself as being very diverse. Very progressive, I would say, Brighton as a place. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that's reflected. The the kind of feeling of the place, the kind of spirit of the place. Is reflected I presume... It in these exhibitions. I presume that's one of the reasons why they did it there.
1: Mm. Because... Because, um, you talk to some people and a, a creator once said in an interview, we don't really talk about ethnicity because it's a local museum for a village, right? It's a predominantly white, uh, older, um, generation and they just wouldn't be interested. Mm-hmm. And so we're not representing them or their interests. So why would we do that? Obviously, there's a, there's a, I think there's a big argument to say, well, shake things up. Um, you're a museum, you're spreading the information. But then, it's, yeah, I suppose it's hard to, to create a display and, and generate interest as a museum if um, you're not representing the, the interest of the people around, mm. especially if it's in a village setting where not many visitors would, would, would go anyway.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's an interesting question itself. With museums, how many people come back to a museum over and over again? If you've been to a museum once, do you go back? I mean, the British Museum, obviously, you go back time and time again, but other smaller museums in particular, once you've seen it, I mean, would you go back? Would you go back for the next 10 years? Is uh, do you, yeah, yeah you can... I
1: think it's a, it's a problem that they talk about as well. So in a lot of surveys sometimes, it's, are you a repeat visitor?
0: <laughs> You're a, <Pete> <laughs> a repeat offender. A repeat
1: offender. Do you walk around here often? Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, I think it's something they, they have to deal with, obviously. Um, you can't really do that with um, permanent displays, can you? Because you can't change them. So temporary displays mm. is what they try and uh, grab them people with. And I think that's why a lot of Smaller museums, the, permanent, the, the temporary displays are things like photographs and um, letters because um, it's always local and it's things that local people would have contributed to so they'll come to see it. So it's more of a social history sometimes rather than... Mm.
0: Sounds um, a very League of Gentlemen there as well. A local yeah. museum for local people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although you were saying the other day about... about the murdering and stuff. Yeah. You were saying the other day about what the future of museums could be like and you mentioned about how the Tate owns various galleries and would we ever see that with museums owning uh, or like there being a, a chain of museums? Do you think as well that that could be also a way of helping out smaller museums in terms of you know bringing people back repeatedly you were saying about exhibitions if you had groups of small museums that came together as a unit and then they could move temporary exhibitions around like in a cyclical way between them. And then that way, switching exhibitions between different museums, it keeps bringing people back to those museums. is for the benefit of the, the wider group as well. I
1: think that would make total sense.
0: I should have done museum studies now, yeah. Absolutely. So, so, Solved the museum problems in our country. There's your next paper. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I think it would make total sense for me. The only issue with that, obviously, is that some museums have loads of stuff in store and they do try and get it out as much as possible. But that's another way to get um, things in store on show, sure, isn't it? I know the British Museum, when they do international or national tours, they use a lot of items from their stores mm-hmm. so yeah, it's a way of doing that, and obviously if you had like small museums in if they join up for like a consortium or whatever mm-hmm. and move them around um if it generates more income through um guests, then yeah they'll have the money to do that won't they to to do to to ship things from one place to the other but then that also looks at the issues of what is a local museum for. Mm. If you have the local material and information go to a different museum, and then that local museum has someone else's artifacts and, and information, have you just generally lost the identity of that museum and then therefore the heritage of the the people who go in there to connect to it?
0: Because mm. it's not it's not just
1: showing the past; it's also showing someone's heritage, isn't it, and identity. So they feel a, a strong connection, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I suppose that's the question about what are museums for and, uh, you know, are they primarily for education? Because you are saying about heritage, but also as well doing that sort of thing could move around exhibitions which then could expose people to different groups and uh, even different cultures that they haven't previously interacted with and change their perspective on it as well. It would be very interesting to say see if you had a museum in a rural area that was linked with a museum in, you know, London somewhere like over you know, a very over part of London, mm. and how you know that would be interesting to show the uh, the differences that would exist in the the stuff they display, which I guess is the stuff that you've probably seen. Yeah, you... yeah, and it's
1: really interesting when you get archaeology museums mixed with anthropology. So the one at Cambridge, the Archaeology and Anthropology Museum, they've got a new mm. exhibition. It's a traveling exhibition. It's a temporary exhibition on. Oh, I really can't remember the word Scarabray scarab. Yeah. The, the the old prehistoric, obviously it's old, it's prehistoric. <laughs> the prehistoric settlement which has loads of like horns and stuff for headwear, and what they've done in in that, they they don't know what the head the horns are for. They think it's for headwear, and so in one of the cases they have a shaman outfit which would, would have been worn by a female, in I think, and this might be totally wrong, an Asian society. And so it's quite nice to see how they've got a prehistoric site and kind of brought that into kind of the modern world as such, or just a different part, a different culture, uh, and that's interesting how they do it because they can uh, with the material they've got. But they aren't—they are an anthropology museum as well. But yeah, it's uh, interesting. But you, you see quite often, I think, um, a creator will put an object in a display. Uh, and it will be something from somewhere completely different, which is just an attachment of. Well, this is used like this here, so it might be like this here. Mm. But it, 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 not only does it bring the the way it's used, it brings all the ideas around it into contention as well. So, with that shaman headdress or, or an outfit, was the was the antlers from this certain place used for ritual, religious, or, or was it just used for? Um, they had a different. Um, aspects where another culture used the horns on the heads for, for hunting, so either to blend in with the, the kind of the surroundings or a ritual thing in that way. So it's, yeah, it's a good thing, mm. interesting, and should be done. What's your favorite museum? Favorite museum is the Lincoln Victorian Prison Museum. It does have two rooms of Roman archaeology, and then the rest is Victorian prison. Um, so i going to do Romans which is probably why I enjoy it
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> what you were saying earlier about how you can separate work from pleasure
1: Yeah, <clears throat> um, but it's kind of half work, half pleasure, because obviously I'm still looking around at all the devices and the techniques they use to connect with people but it's a really cool place, it's inside the Lincoln Castle It's um, you go around all the old cells, the cells are still there the big, big doors, you go into different offices, like the warden's office and the matron's and the doctors, and they'll have like interact interactive desk boards, where interactive desks, where it's basically a big screen. You move things around. You click on leaflets, and it's letters that they've wrote. actually people who worked there told you stories about people who used to live there that they had to deal with. So the matron has a story about some woman who was pregnant, for example, and she had to sleep in the same room as them because she had to birth the child. There is that obviously dressing up, because who doesn't like dressing up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Best thing in the museum, especially as an old matron.
0: that would be genuinely terrifying
1: (laughs) and um, yeah they have um, a brilliant use of projections as well so these cells are really dark and they have um, actors pretending to be the old prisoners that have actually been in those cells and uh, tells their story Mm. and so forth and it's just yeah I think it's really interactive but in a clever way it's not big it's not huge but I can spend like three hours in there easily and not think I've been there for that long.
0: Yeah. One of my favourite museums growing up, actually, was uh, Colchester Museum. I'm not from around there, from around Kentway, but even still, we used to go up there quite often, and I love the fact that they had the museum in a Norman castle, which is on top of the Temple of Claudius, And then as you go around the museum, you obviously go through the Roman stuff. But they have, you know, down to the dungeons, they have stuff to do with witchcraft from the period of the Stuarts and and stuff about the Civil War as well there. And, yeah, I really enjoyed that as a museum. I think I really enjoyed it because it was actually in a castle as well. And it was on top of a Roman temple. And and you could dress up. Did you go to the top of the castle as well? I don't think I did, no. Uh, I've
1: been... I went a few times. I did research on that, but also, like, pleasure. And twice, you can go on like, a tour where you go on the roof. Okay. Uh, and that's pretty good cool, because you see like, the whole Colchester can you there. go down to where the temple is do yep. they do stuff that go down yeah I've the been like, there the twice essentially the temple is massively tall but it's all filled with sand up to a certain point so you're basically stood and can touch the roof of it mm. but yeah it's really impressive that like, you just literally stood in a, a Roman structure with a, with a castle on top of you yeah uh, but yeah the because the, the story of Colchester is amazing anyway
0: Mm. So they can do so much. Yeah, I wonder if one day they have an exhibition in there about the uh, Mithraeum they've got. But <laughs> well, we, we will see. <laughs> Maybe you can push that. On. Maybe they'll change their display from early Christian Colchester <laughs> to the Mithraeum community of Colchester. Yeah, you, you,
1: <laughs> you can push it. The space. <laughs> uh,
0: God, I don't think I'm going to be walking back there anytime soon. Um, what's your favourite exhibition as well? Favourite exhibition is... Because just very quickly, because you don't just go to museum you don't just look at museums in Britain, you look at them abroad as well, primarily Netherlands and Belgium. Yep.
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> and my favourite exhibition, as you know, is uh, was one from Belgium. It was in the Gallo-Romans Museum, and it was called Timeless Beauty. And in this exhibition, it did my, my favourite thing of using the Roman period to look at modern um, concepts. Um, So it wasn't just Roman actually, it was a bit of Greek writing as well. But what it was, it was very modern. You go downstairs and there is these massive pictures of women on um, big canvases like black and white and so forth. And these were took by a photographer who had recently died, so they wanted to reuse his work in a certain way. Uh, And next to these big photos, there were were, um, quotes from ancient um, sources which discuss certain aspects of the female image in the body. Uh, and so the, the the photograph might be, for example, a topless woman, and the quote will talk about breasts, but in a a, a classicist kind of a classical source, mm-hmm. how they think it should look. Obviously, both are um, seen through a man's eyes, which is what they're trying to get at. But it's interesting to see that. It's also interesting to see how they change, but they also had like Roman um objects and small finds underneath. Um so something to do with beauty, like beauty products and products, um, objects to apply and and so forth, like instruments. And then it had another room where it was looking at the female body in motion. Um, so they had a sculptor a sculpt, a sculpture of Aphrodite, I think it is. They had a sculptor's room. They picked it all the way around it. And they also had um dancers who would come in And interpret the way the 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 statue was kind of moving, Uh, so he's looking at it that way. And then there was another room because it was quite big, which looked at had loads of videos of different um, individuals, uh, all females, um, talking about um, what they think about their body, what do they like, what do they not like, what do they think of people looking at them, and and so forth. So and obviously that had. Well, obviously, that had different rooms with different objects, and as well relating to different parts of the human body and age and and whatnot. But yeah, I thought that was really good. I thought attaching the classical period was such a a modern concept and concern it was a nice way to bring the both both the worlds together and say, look, it is relevant. It's an issue which has been going on forever. It was just really really interesting, especially now. I've Just spoke about it. The difference between the first bit, which was women through men's eyes. And then the the opposite room, which was women talking themselves, a different kind of view, where we was looking at well we I mean men, at it from a perspective of beauty, and what we think is beautiful, in that respect. That's where you kind of felt like what it was like that was trying to was trying to get at. And then in the opposite side for me, it was it was a nice kind of transition into what what women actually think and it was a a nice difference so obviously the women on the photographers photographs were all young and traditionally beautiful photographers would generally uh, photograph and um, the other side yeah
0: it was different ages different ethnicities yeah it was really impressive do you find there's much of a difference between the museums that you've seen in britain as opposed to the continent or is it more of a case of there's just differences on a much more regional level? I mean, there must be, I guess, across Britain. But do you find much difference in terms of, the, say, the the Dutch-slash-Belgic museums compared to the British ones? So
1: the first thing you notice, I'm sure anyone has noticed who's been there, is the combination of art and, and archaeology. So they're kind of melded together, in the Netherlands at least, definitely. You see that occasionally in, in Britain, but I don't think that much. And then, the okay. next one is um, you, a theory. There seems to maybe because I'm looking for it, but in the Netherlands, occasionally I saw some displays where I could easily attach theory to them. So in the in the Gallo Romans Museum, for example, when it said the word Romanization, it also said cult, culture mix, culture mixing, um, and stuff like this. And it might not be up to date, modern, but it's still at the time when it was when it was. Um, created perhaps was and um, so it shows a bit of engagement with culture so like pottery they had rich pottery pottery from poorer um, demographics and melded them together to show that there was a transition between them both and there wasn't there was a middle ground it wasn't just two separate fields uh, so that was nice and finally yeah the the kind of space that the roman period gets so the roman period in those of british museums i think takes that center stage sometimes because it's in, in, kind of embedded in our identity, mm. um, or the country's identity, not necessarily ours. And in the Netherlands, for example, the, the, the feeling I got and the message I got from the creators was it wasn't as such the most important part of their history. So I went to a museum which was the Valkhof in Nijmegen, and um, it's art and archaeology. And uh, the creators just basically said we struggle to get people in for the Romans because uh, people seem more interested in modern History rather than uh, going way back to the Romans, which is interesting. Mm. But uh, maybe that's the way we teach it, maybe that's the way we perceive it, time team. But they obviously, they're being embedded within identity is uh, the way that the nation has used it in the past, mm. which uh, I know you talked about a few times. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, so the Victorian period with uh, Queen Victoria using Boudicca. The Empire, like you said earlier, being reflected by the Roman Empire, and to say that brought civilization, so this one will as well. Uh, and this is for David Gibbon, for example, his reflections. is. is it seems very obvious mm-hmm. what he's doing now, but maybe not when he was writing it. Yeah. Um, but stuff like that, we, we've always used the Romans as a, a kind of the cradle or birth of Britain, or the civilized Britain. Because there
0: is that horrible kind of dissociation with the Iron Age. Mm. There's really, there's a really interesting paper in the New Britannia discusses the presentation of Iron Age societies and Roman Britain in media, uh, particularly in schools as well, and how in some respects they're almost polar opposites in many regards. You know, it, it's very interesting how there's, as we know, there's a lot more overlap that exists between the Iron Age and Roman Britain than people realised that roundhouses were still incredibly common in mm. the Roman period. Actually, most people probably still lived in Rome ha- Roman roundhouses. Yeah, would change. But there's, there's, you know, and the Roman world, it's there's much more in the way of people moving around. You know, obviously, you know, people presented in the past as being a lot more civilised as well. But actually, you know, the paper sort of saying that you can actually see these these the almost binaries that exist. But obviously, we know that's not the way it is. But it's those questions of how do you address that. But interesting, that raises the point that if you look at national curriculums, the uh, the English curriculum emphasises R- Roman history and it emphasises the benefits of Roman history. If you go to Wales, the curriculum's different and it actually emphasises non-Roman, particularly Celtic. Mm. Um, uh, history there, and you could see the discrepancy that exists. Uh, it's very interesting, and in how that but, kind of feeds yeah. into you know perceptions of national identities and the origins, or like origin myths, essentially. Yeah, and if
1: you look at the national curriculum for for England, um, the English one, it's uh, not only the Roman period, but it's Roman Britain, mm. so um, it's talking about the Romans in Britain as us. It's not talking about Romans in. Gaul or Rome's in Rome. It's it's it is kind of they were here, they are kind of part of our history in a very embedded sense, and there is a lot of focus on the good that they brought. Mm. There is a a section of it which talks about um kind of native resistance is the term it uses. And um but that really boils down to uh, basically uh, a couple of lessons maybe on Boudicca. Yeah. Um, which uh, isn't probably what the people who made the curriculum or had the, injected the idea first maybe had in mind that it was just
0: going to be Boudicca, or maybe it well, was. Well, according to that Britannia article, the, the people that lay down the national curriculum at the moment don't seem to understand what the difference is between things like the Neolithic and the Mesolithic. No, there the, was loads of mistakes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Before the Roman periods, like the, the, the Iron Age stuff, if you go through the curriculum, you can pick out certain mistakes, so they use a I can't remember where it is, they use a certain destination as an example of the site
0: and it was basically placed in the wrong period of prehistory, hmm. which, which is quite embarrassing. I yeah, I think there's uh, yeah, the people that draw up the curriculum, particularly to prehistory, still have a kind of, it's all the same thing, attitude, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's, all just, it's just really old. Yeah. Get to the Romans and then you, then you're away. What do you think in terms of social media and museums? So we talked about this before, as we talked about this on this podcast before, yeah. <laughs> but we talked about how you know, Instagram has become quite big for museums, Twitter as well, the Museum of Rural Life in Reading. I always think of as an example of a museum which, when you think of it, if you think of famous, I suppose, museums in this country would not be one of the first ones to pop into your mind, but they seem to have quite a tremendous reach now on social media because they yeah. seem to be very engaged with it, and they seem to be quite canny in the way they use it as well. Hmm. I mean, what do you think about that in terms of museum, the future of museums? Do you think museums? I mean, well, I mean, it's kind of it answers itself in terms of do they have to engage with social media more? It's more of a case of I suppose the question is what should they be doing on social media? How do you think museums should? Utilise social media for their benefit um, in future. It's all about staying relative.
1: Um, a museum has to be relative. If they use social media, they're a step closer to being relative. And um, essentially, I think I think being funny on social media is probably the 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 right way of going about it, isn't it? Because people know that Twitter, for example, you're going to scroll past the post, which is quite boring. But if you like the Merlin, you post a picture of a big cow people might stop and be like what on earth is that
0: yeah
1: and then you'll see merle click on merle and you'll be like well if if i'm ever in reading i know there's a museum called merle i know their twitter account is quite funny um i'd probably go around i'd probably go around and and try and find it i went to the horniman the other day
0: would it not be more more merle mel mel i thought it was Merle. Merle. m-o-r-l I thought it was M E R L. It's just it's just funny because the way you're saying it, oh, it sounds sounds like, sounds like a person. I thought it was the Museum of English Rural Life. Oh, ah, okay. So it's just very really interesting when you say Merle It actually makes it sound like a person that you're talking about. So, <laughs> I don't know if that feeds into it at all, but as, an, as a, an acronym of the name Merle is actually quite effective. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I sorry, really I just heard what you said about the whole. I'm not thought about that way.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going around the the Horniman, and I was getting very annoyed with myself. Because I couldn't find the uh, jar of moles, <laughs> and then <clears throat> it got to a certain point. I was like, I'm just gonna have to Google where where, where it is, uh, and um, I was in the wrong museum. <laughs> <laughs> but I was literally walking around the museum because I follow the jar of moles on Instagram, and it's actually at the um, no Twitter I think I follow it, and it's at
0: the the Grant the Grant Museum. Oh, okay, um, that's quite interesting though that that's in a, si- a situation where you've been unintentionally misled in terms of you thought more about the artifact than you thought about the museum so yeah. the artifact was the focus yeah that's but that's the thing that's a, that's
1: a twitter account actually using it so there's there's that one there's also one that's based on london stone as well mm. and uh yeah so i was looking around thinking i'm sure it's in here somewhere and i was getting really annoyed like yeah. why can i not find it? there's loads of animals everywhere there must be a jar of moles why? in here
0: somewhere and i was very close to asking a member of staff as well i mean it would have been quite embarrassing <laughs> excuse me where's your jar of moles i uh last year when i was in rome when i was in the vatican museums they have i don't know how big it is i think they're quite small but they have some images of the the tetrarchs so there's a famous image of them are in porphyry in venice that's the main one you always see when people talk about the tetrarchs like the four of them together but they have um some versions of them in the vatican museum so i wanted to see that i went all the way around the vatican museum got to the end and I was like, I missed it. I don't know where it is. But you can't really go back on yourself. So you had to. I to mm-hmm. start and go around the Vatican Museum again. I only found out, like, from talking to to text messaging somebody. Well, actually, Becky who's on the podcast a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, who's a tour guide in Rome. I got around a second time, and she was like, oh, they in the Vatican Library? Where they're actually you can't see them <laughs> unless you go to the Vatican. Actually, have it. so you walk past the Vatican Library in the yeah. museums, but you can't get in it. And I don't know. Going around the Vatican Museum twice was a, not the best of experiences because <laughs> there are places in the Vatican Museum where you're just like cattle being herded but yeah if the pope ever listens to this make sure you move the tetrarchs out of the library so next time i'm in rome i can see them that'd be that'd be handy (laughs) but it's interesting just in terms of that was the thing i ended up but i mean that tends to be what i end up doing actually sometimes i'll go to a museum but i have much more at the forefront of my mind of seeing a particular object than the rest of the museum yeah and i think that's what
1: social media can do quite well it can entice you in by picking up on something that you're interested interested in so um yeah, the, I'll be going to the Grant Museum at some point, <laughs> and I will find my jar of moles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> some people have a holy grail, you have a jar of moles. Uh... Well, if you open the, the jar, it is a grail
1: of some sort, so maybe... but uh, I, I probably won't drink the juice. Uh, dead moles is not my thing. As a, as a, an actual statement, full <laughs> <I>
0: stop permit. Um... <laughs> No context, Carl. <laughs> uh, no, no, con- no context, car. Dead moles <laughs> off, I think. Um, so, kind of moving towards wrapping up, though. But very quickly, take me take me back to the start because I love the story of how you came to, or, or I love just how what you originally were intending to do in your life before <laughs> you switched to archaeology and heritage. So, yeah,
1: I don't think people realize, <clears throat> or when they meet me, that what this is what I want to do. But I used to be really good at maths when I was at school, and. um <clears throat> we discussed before how archaeology is maybe not seen as a job; it's a pastime, and I saw it that way, and um, probably because it's the way it's shown. And um, so uh, I went to college with the idea of being an accountant.
0: Mm. <laughs> and, um, I can imagine you in your suit and briefcase. <laughs> An umbrella, yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and obviously a bowler of hat. How weird is that,
0: though? Because you could have ended up being uh, an accountant, or you know, working for a banking firm or something like that. You've could have been working in the city near Canary Wharf, and you might have walked, walked past a uh, Museum of Docklands, yeah, yeah, uh, quite often, and you might have been like. What is that? Uh, old old stuff? Well, I suppose you're yeah. still having interest, but yeah, another <laughs> life, another life, maybe. Yeah. There's parallel universes where the two cars have walked past each other and not been aware. One yeah, going to the museum, one on yeah. the way to the bank. Yeah. But yeah,
1: no, yeah. I did, um, so at college, I did accounts, IT, maths, and ancient history, because ancient history was my like, fun thing on the side. You're a bit on the side. Yeah, a bit on the side, ancient history. <laughs> and um, a bit of Cicero. And. Um, <laughs> It was uh, yeah. I kind of really enjoyed ancient history. I really didn't enjoy maths. I just got hit a wall. And I couldn't do any better. I really didn't enjoy ICT. So to the extent we had to make an, uh, a website, so I made a website for speedos, <laughs> <laughs> which was the extent of my interest in the subject uh, in the, in ICT. Not speedos. That's, uh, <laughs> that that goes a long way. My interest in speedos. And um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, so the second that year. I was like, well, I'll start thinking about philosophy as well, so I'll do philosophy. And I also did finance, I was still thinking I might go into like an accountancy sort of um, job. And then, yeah, when university came like knocking and I was thinking about courses, I was like, I might as well try and do something that I'm interested in
0: and find fun. And uh, it's working out-ish. You decided to invest in archaeology. You'd rather bank on that than uh degree in accounting. <laughs> I was waiting for that (laughs) (laughs) Nice (laughs) So Coming up on the horizon as well Turning our minds to the future Track in a few months time Which you've got a session That you're running What's the the deal there? So the session is Whose history is
1: this? Multiple narratives um, In Roman archaeology uh, and essentially, it's kind of it, it's a side part of my... Well, it's mainly the main thing of my PhD, isn't it? Um, but I'm interested in it anyway. I think it's really interesting who's talking through the archaeology, never mind museums, Who's what are the archaeologists saying? Um, and so, yeah, I'm co-organising with Anthony Lee, who um, works at Lincoln uh, Museum, the collection. And, yeah, we've got a really interesting session, I think. We've got um, two papers on... discussion of objects within museums so Anthony's doing one on Roman Roman religion and we've got the creators from the Roman dead talking about the narratives of the Roman dead how do you talk, how do you get the narrative concerning the Roman dead through a narrative which is family friendly and has the creators ideas there as well and then two papers on overbearing um, Celtic narratives so one's about um, Roman island and the other one's about the capital of the Aes Um Obviously, both places, the Roman narrative has to struggle through, which is quite strange, especially the one in Britain, because the Roman narrative always seems to be the dominating one. Um, but in little spots, it's not going to be if you've got a big story like Boudicca. And the last two are basically Roman narratives about archaeology in London. The one's looking at the London stone, and the other one's looking at kind of the state of archaeology, the demographics of archaeology. Mm. Sadie um, Watson, formerly yeah.
0: on the, formerly on the podcast as well. Yep. Go back to the archive. Go back in the archive. <laughs> have a listen. So, if you want to see Carl in the flesh, you can come to track and uh, also organising the party as well. Yeah. So if you want to see
1: the, me, if you want to see me do the worm.
0: Yeah. No. And <laughs> I, I can tell you, he does. Ca- he can do it. I didn't believe it, but he can. He. In fact, in fact, it was track last year where you proved me wrong. It was the pouring it. rain in of the, the Edinburgh Street. Yeah, yeah. he got right down and right back up again. It was. Inc- I was generally quite gobsmacked. <laughs> If people want to find you on social media, they can head to head to Twitter as well.
1: Yeah, Twitter, Carl Goodwin, or on Facebook. Search my name, or I'm um, to search for the pit on CSRFM. Oh yeah. As yeah. <laughs> well plug that yeah. one.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, no, you plug your radio show, yeah. In yeah. fact, actually what we'll do is we'll end with you doing a plug for the podcast, but you switch out the pit and put in uh, coffee and circuses instead. I will do that for you. Okay. The mic is yours, take it away.
1: Okay. So this is Carl uh, Goodwin on CSRFM. Uh, this is Coffee and Circuses. Uh, I've got a special guest, David Welch. Hello. <laughs> and uh, nice to have you here. And uh, yeah. My pleasure. It's actually my pleasure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've got uh, explicit content for it this whole hour. Um, it's all David's dirty, uh, dirty kind of sentences. I'm going to repeat that again. <laughs> dirty sentences. This whole hour will contain explicit content, only because David's on the show, and uh, yeah, swears all the way through, so um, if you uh, find that offensive, then uh, please turn over to something more boring like uh, Ed Sheeran, one of David's favourites. So, uh, yeah, enjoy the show, we're going to kick off with some
0: Slayer. I'm more into Taylor Swift than Ed Sheeran, but there you go. Well, everyone loves Tay-Tay. Yeah, yeah, Tay-Tay, Slay-Slay. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much thanks for listening to coffee and circuses the roman poet Juvenal once said people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses but if i'm going to talk to somebody i'd rather do it over coffee than bread you can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's with full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cahora by Royal Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org and in the background right now you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal originally by John Williams but you all know that, which is available on YouTube Thanks again for listening and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a diocletian